Hey everyone, and welcome into episode 40 of Great Quarter Guys, the show where freight, finance, and tech all come together. We mash it all together and just talk about what we'd like to talk about. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. Here's my boss, Kevin Hill, with me today. Kevin, how are we? We're doing great. We're coming to you live from the Carrier Summit. It's an action-packed first day. The second day is getting off and is started as strong as ever. Yeah, we have a big show. We've got uh, Mr. Ben Gordon, who'll be joining us here in a few minutes after Kevin and I uh, talk the stuff here for about for a few minutes beforehand. This is episode 40, so we've been doing a famous number, uh, either a, a sports player or an athlete or something. Uh, today we got the Gale Sayers episode, uh, the, the Kansas Comet number 40 Hall of Famer. So another thing that we've been doing recently in the show, we've kind of created a new segment. I call it uh, You Care or Not. Nah. It's kind of an ode to highly questionable see si or no. We basically bring up a topic, and Kevin and I discuss whether we care or not and why. Uh, so that's how we're going to start off the show before we get Ben Gordon in here after a commercial break in a few minutes. So we're going to start right off the top with you care or not, nah, Kevin, Tesla stock split. They announced a five to one stock split. This will happen on September 1st. You care or not? Nah? I personally don't care because I'm not a bull on Tesla. I'm not, I'm not really too much of a bear anymore, uh, except uh, when, when I can take pot shots at it. Uh, but, but I think it's, uh, it's probably good for Tesla. It's really good for Tesla, and it's good for Robinhood. All the Robinhooders, like Andrew Cox, will jump on there. Uh, it was about $1,500. Uh, it's, it's almost $2,000 It's almost $2,000. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be you know, about $400 stock. So a lot of the Robinhooders, a lot of the research team will be buying, buying those $400 stocks. I know Hunter <laughs> Carroll's probably uh, buying options yeah. on there or, or something right now. So I, I think it's really good for the valuation of, of Tesla. Uh, but uh, Dooner is going to be buying some more Tesla, too, over here. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I don't really want to, to, to get into the whole Tesla mix, so I don't really care. I, uh, of course, I care. I'm long Tesla. Anybody that watches this show knows that I'm very long Tesla, and we talk about them often. Uh, I care because, again, same reasons that, uh, that Kevin said. Retail traders don't know how to value a company, but they do know that $2,000 is too much for a, a, a one stock, one share. Uh, so I do think that people will be more willing to pay the 400 of course, the retail traders that, that, that don't know that uh, their price to earnings is 1,000 times, uh, you know, those type of things. It's, it's um, really great for, for Tesla. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really going to bump up that valuation, whether it makes sense or not. Yeah. It probably doesn't make sense, but Walmart has split their stock 11 times uh, since they went public in the mm-hmm. 70s. So this is this happens. It's going to happen again, likely, uh, if, if Tesla stock keeps growing the way it is. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Buffett thinks there's no reason forever to ever have a stock split. He never sees any value in it. Uh, but in this case, I see some value. Here, here's another one. We'll just keep going with Buffett here. Uh, the second you care or not, Buffett has pretty much sold all of his bank stock. He, redu- he sold all of his Goldman Sachs, uh, reduced um, his other two banks by two-thirds, basically trimmed all of his holdings. You care or not? I do care about that because he bought all those holdings. Most of, most of those holdings were during the, the financial crisis back in 2009, at the, the darkest days of the financial crisis, and he got them really cheap. Really, really great deals because he was basically the lender or the equity buyer of last resort for a lot of those banks uh, during their darkest days. And now he's probably seeing that it's peaked, maybe a peak earnings. And he's, 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 he sold that and rotated a little bit of it to, to gold miners or a gold miner. And, uh, and I, I find it very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I have thoughts. I don't. I don't think I care, uh, but I do have thoughts. Uh, I mean, how can you oh, not care what Buffett does? Well, because I think this is more of a, a cautious but not bearish sign. I mean, yes, people are making a big deal that he rotated into gold, but he only has like a six hundred million dollar stake in Barracks. Uh, it's like mm-hmm. a 
a third of 1% of his overall portfolio. I just don't think it's like a big enough deal. And, and it honestly probably wasn't even his call. It was probably one of the other, uh, one of the other analysts at, gold, at, um, at Berkshire Hathaway that decided to get into Barrick's gold. I, just, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, I think, um, you know, his saying back from 1986, fearful when others are greedy, greedy when others are fearful. I guess he's seeing too much greed in the market right now, which, which is, it's a good argument to make. We had all-time highs in the S&P earlier this week after falling down 30% in March. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't care that much. This isn't the first time that, that Buffett may have been wrong. If he's wrong on this one, he, he missed the dot-com uh, boom. He, he missed buying Google and Netflix and all the other guys in the early 2000s. So, he, yes, he's good, but he's not, he's not, he's not the god. He's, he's not the only he's one. He's the that, oracle uh, of Omaha. Ah, yes, he's the oracle of and, Omaha. And but Emily Zink might disagree with you. Yeah, I'm sure, Emily, I'm sure Emily would disagree with me. She loves Warren Buffett. But I, I think that the gold part of it is, is not that big of a deal. I think getting out of the bank stocks is, uh, is a bigger deal. Just because he's probably seen a peak, or he's he squeezed as much juice over the last decade from banks as he's going to get, and he's out. I mean, this, this wasn't the only thing he sold, though. You know, he sold off his airlines as well, and all of his stakes in the restaurant yes. businesses. I mean, he sold he sold everything that was hit hard by the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, but he caught a lot of flack for it because he sold the airlines at the bottom. Uh, he sold a lot of the restaurants at the bottom. Uh, so you know, yes, he's the Oracle of Omaha, but everybody makes mistakes. Uh, but those bottoms could be in, in airlines for for quite some time. It could. He might and he might get back in. He might get back in. At some other time, he's still sitting on you know what, what is it 150 billion dollars in cash. Uh, they're 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 just fine. Uh, number three. Walmart uh, grew e-commerce sales 97% in Q2, doubled e-commerce sales year over year. You care or no? I very much care what was Target. Target tripled yeah, e-commerce sales. So, so going back to the pandemic and trends, I think this is the biggest trend that's, uh, that's coming out of the pandemic is that it's just accelerated a, f- a few trends. And one of those is e-commerce and companies going all in on e-commerce and final mile delivery, which we'll talk to Ben Gordon about here in a few minutes, uh, a little bit more, and uh, you know, pick it and, or click it and pick it, and all these trends, it's huge. Yeah, I mean, you know, I care. I'm I'm very long Walmart. Uh, we, if you want to see our episode, we, we did just two weeks ago. I think we did the, the case for Walmart doubling. Go back and watch that. It's it's a great episode with Seth Holm. Uh, I mean, yeah, amazing growth. Ninety seven percent e commerce growth in the U S. One hundred and four percent growth in China. It, it's a remarkable story, really, as other big box stores have not been able to transition into you know the next generation retail offering some some sort of uh, in store and e commerce offering. Walmart's literally writing the book on it. I mean, they mm-hmm. are, they're killing it. They are, they, they've doubled down on their stores, and yet they've partnered where they can and, and are doing a great job. I mean, it's, it's an awesome story. Yeah, yeah you, you have to think that Walmart has all these DCs. They're, they're called stores, super stores. Yeah. You know, garden stores or what is that, hometown stores, the, the grocery stores, Yeah, right? the, the hometown market or Hometown or markets. Like that. You know, they, they have distribution centers all over the place. Why not tap into that and, and, and they have the technology, they have the supply chain expertise? Go for it. Uh, so we got two more. We'll try to get them in before our commercial break here. The first one is uh, the world's largest company, Apple, passed $2 trillion in market cap yesterday. Uh, you care or no? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I no, not really. I, yeah. I think they just did another stock split too. Uh, I think they recently. announced one. Yeah, I don't they, know they announced they've done one. It yet. Yeah, so I, I think two trillion. I two trillion is a lot for any company. It's a lot of money. I, it, it is. It's just a lot for. I, I know that they make everything that you, we all have iPhones and we all have Macs or we don't have Macs, but, but a lot of people. Yeah, do. a lot of people yeah. do. They have Apple Watches. Two trillion is still a lot, a lot of money. money. 
Yeah, I don't care about this either um, f- for a couple of reasons. One, you know, th- there are some cool things to talk about here. It took them, what, 30 years to get to one trillion and then two years to get to two trillion. I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, I- but I've just been finding a way to care. And, and I-, I just I just don't. I think they're going to grow from here. I think they'll grow from here. I just I just don't really care. That much. I-, I think what it does tell us is how frothy the, the S&P is and the, the equity markets, right? Uh, no doubt. They're very frothy. I, I think they're, they're probably very much overvalued as a whole. Uh, okay, last think? one here before oh. we uh, before we go to break. Uh, you know, this is a story about GM. They seem to be contemplating a spinoff of their electric vehicle market. This this first came around in 2018. Apparently, an internal discussion leaked, and then an analyst from Goldman, I want to say, it just last week, kind of brought it up in another note uh, and just and kind of thought it was a good idea that they could spin off this business. They think the the EV business is is severely undervalued while still under the GM brand. They think they could spin it off. Kevin, you care or know about this? I, I can't say that I really care too much about it. I, I think the analyst is probably right that uh, if you look at Nikola, um, uh, what are a few of the others that have done SPACs and well, Workforce well, being one? Yeah, highly on. There's a highly I mean, on. That's what I was thinking about. Uh, we've had a, a few of those on the, the midday market update and what the truck. Uh, I, th- those companies are getting really valued high, really high valuations. And Nikola is kind of, kind of a lot of. A lot of volatility in there, but what do you think, Andrew? Uh, no, I don't care either. I mean, for me, EV brands are kind of like us hard seltzer brands right now. There's half, a, there's three dozen yeah. of them, but none of them are ever going to be as White Claw or Tesla. So they're just kind of chasing the, the mm-hmm. ultimate brand. But we'll be right back after these messages. We got a, a few minutes of uh, commercials for you. Enjoy. Welcome back, everyone. We have Ben Gordon here on the line with us. We're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk some M&A activity, the last mile segment. We're going to talk Amazon, of course, because nobody can keep them out of their mouths. Uh, they're always making new, They're always making noise. Uh, so let's go ahead and bring Ben in here. He was involved recently. Of course, Ben is the managing partner of Cambridge Capital and BG Strategic Advisors. BGSA was recently involved in an acquisition uh, of, of NFI. Uh, so go ahead and talk us through this, Ben. What you advise on this deal. Tell me why NFI made this acquisition, and is there a read-through to the industry as a whole. Sure, absolutely. And great to see you guys again. Thank you. So this is a pretty interesting deal. NFI and CAI are both about $2.5 billion businesses. NFI is private, $2.5 billion of revenue. CAI is public. Uh, They're really a market leader in container leasing. But CAI had a logistics division, a little over $100 million business doing asset light logistics, truck brokerage, intermodal marketing, global freight forwarding. And it was not core to the business for a container leaser. Uh, NFI acquired it. Uh, it was NFI's 20th acquisition in the last 20 years. So they've had a, a long and successful history. I've known NFI for over 20 years and they've done a fantastic job. Um, and it gives everybody something they want. So NFI gets the ability to strengthen their logistics on the non-asset side, multimodal leadership, truck brokerage and remote marketing, global freight forwarding. CAI gets to spin off something that's non-core gets to focus on their container leasing business, uh, where they have over a million intermodal shipping containers. Um, and in the end, everybody gets to double down on their strength. So it was one of those situations where everybody wins. So, so Ben, do you think that we'll see more acquisitions like this in 2020 uh, and going into 2021, where everyone's kind of doubling down on what they do really well and shedding things that are non-core? I do. Uh, I I think there are a few elements that we'll see more of. One is, I think we'll see more large companies that are divesting non-core operations. Uh, You know, when you're a public company, you you get a limited amount of time to 
for the market to allow you to execute. And if you don't do exactly what the market expects, they tell you. And spinning off non-core divisions is an easy way for public companies, A, to focus on what they're great at, and B, to let shareholders know that they're listening to them. So I think you're going to see more of that. And, and then finally, I think you also have aggressive acquirers. You know, the, the NFI situation is a good example. You know, smart, aggressive companies who are looking to buy more, particularly in areas that are attractive like asset light logistics. So I think you'll see all of those. What, one last thing I want to add, you know, this was a meaningful deal, but it was not a multi-billion dollar deal. It wasn't like XPO buying Norbert Dontrasongol or Conway. Um, and I think that's also telling. I think you'll, you'll see more of these kinds of mid-sized deals that make good strategic sense. That makes sense. We see a lot of, again, as you said, uh, smart, aggressive companies making mid-sized deals. We've seen that a lot in the last mile space, which is what, uh, something I want to speak to you about. You know, uh, what comes to mind, we've seen a lot of M&A activity this year. J.B. Hunt, CRST, Forward Air come to mind when I think. So we also saw Global Trends roll out a last mile offering. Uh, this has been an, a, a string of logistics providers attempting to get into the final mile segment. You recently said on LinkedIn that you think every logistics company should have a last mile strategy. Explain this to us. What does a strategy entail? Who's got one? And what does it look like? Sure. Well, let's start with what is it? So, so last mile is more important than ever. Um, a couple of days ago, Walmart announced that their e-commerce sales were up 97% year over year. So pause and think about that. That's staggering. You know, it, it's one thing when a small company can double or triple or quadruple, but a company the size of Walmart doubling their e-commerce sales uh, is, is massive. And it just tells you that last mile is more important than ever before. So what's happening in last mile is consumer behavior has changed. COVID has caused people to work from home, uh, buy from home, and, and uh, spike in preference for, for e-commerce. And that in turn is all these ripple effects for supply chains. So growth in last mile, growth in e-commerce fulfillment, growth in support of e-commerce. Um, one trend that's come out of that is this idea of click and collect from store. So instead of going to the store, you buy online and pick up, you know, the this is an industry that loves acronyms. So, so Opus. you know that both, right? <laughs> yeah. or both. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, but you know, buy online, pick up in store. So, in May, there was a 554 percent increase in in-store pickup. Okay, just staggering. So, so you had this huge demand increase for last mile. Consumers want it. They expect to get more choice. They expect the time windows to get. Uh, uh, to get narrower and narrower. And that in turn puts pressure on retailers and logistics companies to respond to that. Um, so I think you've got this demand. Um, you also have this demand for logistics companies uh, to find ways to meet that. 83% uh, of all respondents from a recent ARC survey uh, said they're using UPS and FedEx for last mile. But guess what? UPS and FedEx is not enough. Um, a, their capacity constraint. B, the rates are going up. So what's happening is more and more logistics companies are saying, we need to find a way to meet that need. And that also means they need software to help support that, to expand their network and work with a, a broader base. So, so fundamentally, that's what's happening in last mile. What it means for logistics is, if you're big, like XPO, you need a strategy. XPO bought 3PD in Atlanta. They, they deploy over $550 million a year in technology. That's great. But mid-sized companies, small companies, all logistics companies need some sort of a strategy to figure out how to participate in this last mile boom.
Ben, I have a quick question on uh, on pick it and click or click it and pick it. I always get those reverts on click it and pick it and and those strategies. I, I know that during the the pandemic, it was it was survivor. It was a, a survival strategy because your stores are are basically shut down. And uh, Amazon and other deliveries were delayed, so it became a really good option. Is that a profitable um, a model, or do you think that that, uh, that that big box retailers and other retailers who have been doing click it and pick it will pivot and, and go into a real e-commerce kind of fulfillment distribution model? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. First of all, it's a great question. And it's hard to answer it because these pieces are bundled. So, for example, if more people buy online uh, from Target and as a result, Target covers its fixed cost uh, you know, more effectively, but the unit, the contribution margin from that is, isn't so big, how do you calculate it? Is it that you, do you look at the unit contribution or, or, or do you look at the aggregate? Uh, so it's hard to say. But, but what I will say you know, for sure is the investment that these big retailers like Target are making in support of whether it's Bopis or other areas of, of, uh, of, of last mile, they are for sure paying off. So if you take Target, Target bought Grand Junction, uh, which, is, which is one of our companies, uh, Shipped, Delive, uh, all those removes they made to strengthen in last mile. Well, if you look at Target's results, which just came out yesterday, I think, Target is crushing it. Target's curbside pickup is up over 700%. Their sales fulfilled by Shipped, which is their online delivery service, that's up by 350%. Target added 10 million new digital customers. Um, and by the way, they've taken 5 billion in share from competitors. Uh, and their stock is up. I think their stock is, you know, has, has doubled in the last year. So, so fundamentally, yes, uh, you know, those investments in last mile and technology for Target are, are paying off. And I think every retailer should be thinking, what investments am I going to make in last mile too? So you believe that uh, it's not only logistics companies, but retailers as well that need to have a final mile strategy. Let's Before we talk about some of those very unique final mile strategies like Workhorse or some of the other ones, we'll get into those. But let's talk about geography for a, mo- for a moment. Obviously, the U.S. isn't the only country that's having this e-commerce boom. They're not the only country that, that has a lot of companies focused on e-commerce. Are there any differences between the way international players are focusing on final mile versus the U.S. companies? Yeah, there's some differences. So if you look at Latin America, for example, we have a portfolio company, Liftit, that does last mile logistics te- uh, technology th- throughout Latin America. So, you know, in Latin America, the majority of shippers outsource the truck delivery a- um, in general, and the majority of the trucking market in turn is comprised of owner operators. So it's a more fragment. The U.S. market is fragmented, but it's even more so there. Um, so in turn. That means that it's that much more important to figure out how to manage an owner-operator network uh, when you're in a place like Latin America. So having the technology to, to, to orchestrate that, to manage that, to have a, a kind of a, a, a virtual network, that becomes that much more important. And by the way, with good technology, you can squeeze huge inefficiencies out of that. I know, I mean, just to pick an example, which I think I can talk about, the Lyft is working with a company called Dan, Dan the uh, food company. Uh, Dan has taken a 22% bite, no pun intended, out of their transportation costs because, uh, you know, because of the you know the technology to manage that last mile network with, with all those owner operators. So I think I think that's one big element. Now, um, again, you could argue that uh, the owner operator uh, market share as a percent of the total in the U.S. Uh, is high. If you measure it in units, you know it's something like. Uh, 
uh, 90% of all trucking companies are owner operators. But if you measure it market share, uh, you know, different story. It's a little, little bit more balanced. But the market share is higher for small guys in, in other markets. And that means technology to manage that network becomes that much more important. Ben, let's stay with LiftIt for a moment. We had Patrick Duffy, our president of BIDA, uh, which is the Blockchain and Transportation Alliance. He reached out with a question on LinkedIn. This was speaking in, in particular to the LiftIt uh, investment. They just raised $22.5 million. The funding was uh, led by you in Cambridge Capital. He asks, what type of bi-directional learnings are being derived from the American and Brazilian last mile logistics marketplace? Marketplaces, he's interested in learnings for operations, but also as it relates to investment portfolio strategy. Can you speak to that for me? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of bidirectional learnings. One thing that's similar and one thing that's different. One, I mean, last mile Latin America, similar issues to, to the U.S. in terms of, uh, you know, difficulty getting visibility into what's there, uh, fragmented market, desire to get more density, desire to boost your utilization transparency. There are a few things that are harder about it. Things like, uh, I mean, just to, to give you an example, turns out that a lot of the customers uh, were not doing electronic uh, POD, proof of delivery. So you actually had to do the delivery. Then you had to go send a guy on a motorcycle out to do the delivery again. So you go, wow, you know, we're a tech company. Why are you doing this? But, but you know what? You, you've got to work with customer behavior and figure out how to help. So, you know, th then it becomes a conversation around how do you facilitate that? Maybe you give them pricing discounts. Maybe you, uh, you know, there, there could be a carrot and a stick, right? So how you create incentives to, you know, in, in order to, to, to manage that. And I think that's a two-way street. I mean, every company, regardless whether it's lifted in Latin America or, you know, bring in Israel in the U.S. or Delivery Circle in the U.S. or, or, or otherwise, anybody that's in last mile has got to be thinking, how do I incentivize user behavior uh, to become more efficient, right? And, and so, so I think that's been one, you know, one important learning and, and I think one, one important conversation. Um, I think a second is brokerage is a bigger deal in Latin America than it is in the U.S. In the U.S., Brokerage penetration is about a third of the market. Uh, it's double that in, in Latin America. Um, so on the one hand, it means working with brokers is more important there. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the technology adoption is, is further along in, in the U.S. So, you've, again, like, like, like the POD example, you've got to figure out how to work with the market, with the customers, and then, uh, and then help them. So, uh, and, and, and that's partly about technology. It's also just partly about organizational behavior and understanding how to work with companies and, again, meet, meet them where, where they are. So, uh, you know, but I'll say one other thing. In other areas, you know, Latin America is ahead. Uh, and and the, the technology, uh, I mean, it's kind of like with, with mobile phones. Because uh, the, the phone infrastructure in the U.S. was further along, mobile phone adoption was actually faster in markets that didn't have that infrastructure. So I think same thing. You're seeing some leapfrog technology opportunities and you know, Lyft, it's a good example of being able to deploy some things faster in Latin America than you could do here. Yeah, that's interesting. And you have a lot of automation. I, I didn't realize that the, the brokerage business was about double penetration in Latin America. I, we talk about a lot of automation in the final mile, a lot of fine, really door delivery methods. You have drones, you have robots, you have all kinds of ideas. I want to ask both, uh, both Ben and yourself, Andrew, what are your favorite ideas out there for automating that really final piece? Ben, take the lead, well, man. Uh, all right. <laughs> Look, I think I think uh, you know there's a great line that it's not it's not about man versus machine, it's man plus machine, right? right. We talked about that a little bit before. So so I think yeah, drones are cool, software is cool, uh, but most successful models 
uh, are employing hybrids to combine multiple capabilities. So as an example, I love what we're, what we're seeing in the drone world in terms of the ability to use drones for e-commerce fulfillment last mile. But, but I think it's even more interesting when you bundle that with something else. For instance, you, know, you have a truck that goes to a certain uh, uh, kind of a waypoint, and then the drone can go out and back from that truck, whether the truck mm -hmm. stays st stationary or moves to its next waypoint. And, um, and, and it just it gives you more flexibility and, and adaptability that way. So uh, in the end, it, drones as a technology will be interesting, but supply chain companies that can bundle these different capabilities will end up being the big winners, in my view. What do you think? Yeah. No, I, I'm I'm completely with you. I think uh, you know workhorse m model there, where you have a, a driver in a van. The van is an electric van that goes into the neighborhood. <clears throat> you can have him delivering to one side of the street while the drone pick, picks up prepackaged uh, deliveries and, and drops it from 20 feet. You don't have interference of dogs and kids. That was my biggest thing. If you have drones flying around neighborhoods, a dog is going to hit it. A, a kid is going to hit it. It's something ugly is going to happen. So I think keeping them way above the the houses from 20 feet or so and dropping things down, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. But I do like to continue this conversation about workhorse because we've only got about five minutes here. Let's 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 jump right into the SPAC conversation. This has been a hot button topic. There's been a, a slew of freight tech companies utilize this special acquisition purpose vehicle as their route to uh, the public markets. We've had Nikola, Workhorse, Hylion. I mean, that's there's literally a dozen now. Uh, but Ben, you talked about this before we got on the air. You talked about the way that these deals are being used. It's much different now than it was five to 10 years ago. Can you tell me what are the differences between the freight tech companies now using SPACs? Definitely. So 10 years ago, the SPAC market was all about relative value, okay? So if you were going public through a SPAC, you would market it the same way you would market an IPO, which was predominantly by saying, look, what I do is similar to some other public company, but I'm going to price it at a 15% discount to that. So you, you the, the public, have a reason to buy the stock, okay? I'm going to go public as a truck broker. You can look at where CH Robinson, Echo, XPO, and others price and say, hey, if they're at pick a number 12 times EBITDA and, and this IPO prices 10 times EBITDA, you know, you've got a, a relative value. Fine. What's happening today is we've gone from relative value to story stocks. Okay. So Nikola goes public with no material revenue, right? Uh, Lurch Sound Motors, right? It's a year old company born out of an abandoned GM plant in, in Ohio, goes mm -hmm. public through, you know, merged with Diamond Peak, valued at 1.6 billion. You know, Fisker, you know, public through, you know, merged with Spartan Energy Acquisition Corp. Those companies might be great companies or not, but one thing's for sure, they're story stocks, not relative value. Um, there's no EBITDA multiple that you could say is at a 20% discount to comps. The, so the market's buying these because they like the story and they believe there's a, a future trajectory here. And maybe that'll work, maybe it won't. Uh, my personal view is I think, I think story stocks are pretty risky. Well, Ben, uh, so, you know, we talked about the story stocks being risky. We, we, they may not hold up in the public markets. We've seen Nikola very volatile in the last few months. What does it take for the SPAC industry to kind of lose the trust of investors? Is, is it one major blow up? Is it the Nikola that, that's worth now 20 to 30 billion? It, does that story going to zero? Would that, would that shake the SPAC industry to its core? Yeah, I mean, if, if Nikola is worth nickels, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> so I think, and I think that could happen in one of several ways. One is, they got away with, with making it to this point on the basis of a story, but eventually they're going to get measured on metrics. So if, if you miss a quarter, you miss an important metric, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden there's a, a flight away from, from that company, A, it's bad for that company, but B, 
uh, it might also make other investors more reluctant to invest in the next SPAC or invest in the next story stock. And considering the volume here, I mean, SPACs this year, there have been 70 IPOs, 24 on deck, 28 billion of gross proceeds. Uh, last year, by the way, it was 14 billion, and that was a record at the time. So last year's record is now already double that. So I think everything is priced for perfection. One stumble, you know, the, the whole thing could topple. Yeah. So, so Ben, we have about a minute left, and I have a question on SPACs. Is, does it really, that the popularity of SPACs, especially with story, story stocks, is that uh, an indicator of the weakness of the, the exit options for uh, a lot of companies out there right now? I actually think it's more about things like like the rise of Robinhood and and people that are investing new newcomers who are investing in the markets and and you know the rise of momentum investing. I mean the truth is if you're a uh, large successful company you've got plenty of options. There's more private equity than ever before. Uh, there's the public markets. There's the debt markets are still strong. So so I actually think good companies have multiple good options and and uh, you know this just happens to be one of those three. All right, Ben, I got I to gotta wrap us up here, man. We only got 30 seconds left. Thank you so much for joining us. We didn't even get to half the topics I'd like to talk about. So we'll bring you on Great Quarter Guys here in a few weeks and, and finish up this conversation. And if you have any, any questions for Ben out there, go to the Great Quarter Guys channel, and Ben will be, asking, or be answering questions uh, on that channel for the next uh, few minutes. Yeah. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us today for episode 40, the Kansas Comet Gale Sayers episode. Up next, we have Fuller Speed Ahead. We got double the Fuller on this one. Craig and Eric are talking about Variant, the new fleet product uh, from US Express, digitizing everything. Everybody enjoy.